Sales is definitely tough right now. The overwhelming consensus with all of the clients that I work with and my friends that are in the training, coaching business, and, and the reps that we work with, supports of sales is really tough. I mean, when you look at the data, there's a recent, and I recommend that you go check this out. There is a company called CapChase who just put out a report. It's a few months old now, maybe a month and a half old, called B2B SaaS Sales Cycles in 2023. And I thought I'd share some of those findings with you before we get into the episode today. Uh, and before I do that, my name is Jason Bay. You're listening to Outbound Squad, and this podcast is all about helping you turn complete strangers into paying customers. So we focus a lot on outbound and sales skills for SDRs and account executives. Everything from your cold outreach to discovery, demos, multi-threading, all of that kind of stuff. So CapChase, and let me know, maybe reach out to me on LinkedIn. Let me know if you like this type of thing in the podcast. I started, started thinking, you know, I think it'd be good to maybe share trends and news in the industry that affects you as a salesperson or a sales leader at the beginning of these episodes before we dig into the interviews. So in this report from CapChase, they looked at 500 B2B SaaS revenue leaders. They looked at their companies, they interviewed them, and what they found is pretty astonishing. One, average sales cycles are 27 days longer. It's about 134 days right now versus 107 last year. So it's taking about a month longer on average to close deals. And my hunch is that a lot of that is due to the additional stakeholders that we're seeing involved in deals, people being more resistant. I mean, Gartner's got a stat, I think it was 56% of software purchases are categorized as high regret. So in other words, over half the time when a company buys software, they end up regretting it. So people are being more careful about the software that they purchase. The average SaaS vendor loses 18% of their ACV on discounts. So negotiating, I think is a super important skill right now, being able to negotiate without giving away all of your commissions, without negotiating away all of your margins really big and average deal sizes are down about 22%. So you take all of that data and if you started selling after 2010, which I believe from 2010 to around 2020-ish, it was the longest bull run market in America at least ever in recorded history. So we had a, a really awesome time there for a while. And right now it's, it's tough. It's tough for most reps. This might be your toughest year in sales if you started selling after 2010. So today's episode, what we're going to dig into with my good friend, Kyle Van Voris, is we're going to get back to basics. He just released a book, really good book. It's called 16 Steps to Repeatable Sales. I recommend you go check it out on Amazon. And what we dig into is 16 steps that he walks his clients through. And these are companies everywhere from founder-led sales with a few reps to companies with thousands of employees. It's 16 steps he's used to help his clients. In the last couple of years, he's been in the consulting business, close over $100 million in revenue. And Kyle is a very big processes guy and... What we're going to talk about is how sales process, the team makeup, how you set up your stages, how you train your team, the people you put in the seat, how this impacts sales cycles, how it impacts deal sizes, how it impacts negotiations, all of that kind of stuff. So I think you're really going to enjoy it. And again, let me know. I'm going to start working in this type of news 
and stats and findings and just news in SaaS that could affect you as a sales professional or revenue leader. So let me know what you think. Shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Let me know what you think. And before we dig in, I appreciate you tuning into the show. So it means a lot that you spend this time here. If you wouldn't mind leaving an honest rating overview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, I'd really appreciate it. So without further ado, let's get to the interview with Kyle. Dude, so third book you've written, right? In the last couple of years. And that's how we originally... I don't want to say it's how we originally met. I originally reached out to you. I was like, hey, dude, I've been recommending your book so much. <laughs> yeah. From Cold to Committed. Uh, that's the name of the book, right? From Cold to Committed. Um, that I was like, dude, uh, I've never met this guy before. <laughs> and then somehow we got connected. I can't remember, but congrats, dude, on uh, another book. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited. It was. Uh, it's a pleasure going through the process of organizing your thoughts in a way that other people can execute on. So anytime I yeah. get the opportunity to do it, I uh, jump full in. And this was the easiest book for me to write. So uh, I'll take this over <laughs> my old way of writing books any day. Well, let's talk about that because that's what we were talking about just before we hit record. Um, before we dig into what's in the book, tell us the style of the book I think is yeah. very unique. Um, what was the thought process going into the style and can you elaborate a little bit more on yeah. how this book is laid out? Cause I, I feel like it's pretty unique and in, in a form that's going to be very easy to digest too, for the person reading it. Absolutely. So I, I feel, and look, this is just my perspective, but I feel that a lot of books spend a good amount of time trying to convince me why what they're about to teach me is the right thing to do. Yeah. It's like the first and, half of the book. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Can we get it, dude? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Another study. And I do think there's value in that, but this is a topic that you can find a lot of that material already. Like if you want to know why it's important to dive deep into your total addressable market and split it up by verticals, like by all means, go and do that. But that's not what you're getting out of my book. I'm, I spend zero time convincing you that what I said is the right way. I just hope that you follow me, you know me, that you get my background and you can put that piece together for yourself. And instead, I spend all of my time laying out a very clear framework or guidebook that's 16 steps. If you just follow these 16 steps, you will have a repeatable sales process. You just got to follow them. And it's not going to be easy. It's difficult building a sales process. But once you do it, it's really uh, freeing. Because what I find is the real biggest lever to pull with sales teams is, is the people and the culture. If you can sink yeah. all of your energy in building strong relationships and building an incredible sales culture, that's going to be your biggest return on time. But because so many organizations overlook the importance of having the right strategy in place, the right operations in place, and making sure that there's a foundation for that sales team to be built on top of, they end up in the land of both where they're trying to have a good culture and good relationships, but they're also trying to build and then fix broken foundation. And it sucks your energy and it splits you in a way that isn't useful for either of those two things. So by laying a yeah. strong foundation and following the 16 steps that I outlined, then you have something you actually build on and all of that building has to do with the people and then the culture that yeah. you cultivate. And one thing, just to give you a little credit too, to the why piece, I mean, this is stuff that you've used to help companies generate like nine figures plus of revenue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's you've been, true. you've been at it for a little while. So there's a, <laughs> what I love is that that's a page. It's like, cool. Got it. Awesome. This guy knows what he's doing for sure. Let's dig into it. 
Um, Real quick, let's just kind of uh, dig in. Just to, yeah, this is super funny. I had sent the book to be designed before I had written that page. And I had sent it off. And then like two days goes by. I'm like, I don't know if I put anything about my own background in there. And not everyone who buys is going to know who I am. So I quickly wrote a page and like sent it to the designer because we had a really tight timeline because I wanted to do November 1st and sent it to the designer. And I was like, sorry, can you slip this in right here? Uh, But anyway, yeah, super funny. I told, I almost forgot that. You're like me a lot in this area. One of the things that I'm really working on in our business is more social proof, dude. You've worked with all these great companies. Share it. Talk about it more. Um, Let's dig in. You mentioned people and culture and foundation. I think that for the conversation today, if you're listening to this and you're a sales rep, uh, you're going to get a lot of value, especially if if you're working for a team or for sales leadership that is fairly new and is kind of getting their feet wet doing a lot of this stuff. I think if you're a sales leader or founder building out a sales process and sales team, and then also some of the really, you know, quote unquote, mature companies that I work with don't really have a robust sales process. So if there's any sort of process elements missing uh, from your sales team right now, I think you're going to get a lot out of the conversation. But you mentioned people and culture. What are some of the mistakes if we kind of look at a very common situation where it's maybe founder led sales or the founder brought in a VP of sales, let's say, and is building out a sales team and they're looking to scale past the, you know, five reps rolling straight up to the founder and they're looking to put like frontline leaders in place and that sort of stuff. How do, how do you suggest someone thinks about from a people standpoint, do I have the right people to do that and what I should be looking for in the people and the culture? So in the very beginning, it's important that those people have a background selling a similar product into a similar market, or at the very least, have an experience selling into that market, even if the product isn't all that similar. Being able to speak the language of the buyer is one of the bigger levers you can pull when it comes to getting performance out of your sales team. But one thing, and this isn't a direct answer to your question, so I hope I satisfied that a little bit so I could talk about what I actually think is the most powerful, which is um, the relationship that the rep has with prospects and their ability to be comfortable interfacing with their prospects. And what I actually mean about about that is that what I find is once a company gets a little bit larger and they start developing that mid-level management piece, there's a lot of emphasis around what folks are doing. Are you hitting the dials? Like, are you doing, you know, the calls, right? Are you saying the right thing on the phone? And a lot of times I get pulled in because they're like, Hey, I think we could be saying this better. We could handle these objections better. And those aren't the biggest levers. And what I really find the biggest lever is, is the rep's ability to truly be present with the person that they're talking to. So for example, I spoke to a team of 40 SDRs in Dallas um, two days ago, actually. And as as of recording this, two days ago. And I kind of get, get all the team together, there's 40 of them. And I go through this exercise called building your cold call character, where I'm like, here are the components of your cold call character. And this is somebody that you embody on the cold call. And I have them share experiences that their character had. And then what you, this always happens, what you start to realize is people are just using their own experiences. They're not creating a character. And I asked the audience, and I said, are you starting to figure out what we're doing? And they don't get it at first. And then as you go through it, they start to realize, oh, this is just me. 
But so yeah. much of the rep's attention is focused on how do I be what I feel like I'm supposed to be in order to move this deal forward, where if you were to shed that from you and just focus on being very present with the person you're speaking to, unencumbered by the thoughts of how should I be acting and how should I be navigating this, you end up doing a lot better. And that team, the very next day after I spoke, had one of their biggest days uh, on record. You know, they were very close to breaking the, the record of most meetings booked in a day. And that's all nice. because you just tear out, tear away those pieces of you that are really impacting you, but aren't as quantifiable as the number of calls you make, the number of demos that you book. Yeah. It's like the, it's the intangible parts of success. Psychology. So is that something that I feel like with smaller, earlier stage companies, you can afford to be really picky. You don't need to hire 500 reps. That's right. You can be extremely picky. So is that something that you're encouraging people to look for in the hiring process where you, you got this figured out, where I'm bringing yeah. people in that for the most part have this figured out, they have decent product, industry knowledge, something to where they understand a little bit about what the day-to-day -day is like for the people. Yeah, and, and I get I get some criticism for this. Um, I do encourage folks to hire reps that have an experience in the industry that they're selling and take the time to, to do it because yeah. it's very, what a lot of organizations do, they hire and hope they hire sales reps and they hope that they end up working out. And then when they don't, they don't have the full confidence to let those people go because they're unsure if the reason why they're not successful is because of them or if it's because of the actual rep. And that's a scary place to be because you can't make a very clean decision. So I'll give you a real example of this. And this is just yesterday. I was speaking, this is a prospect. I yelled at this prospect on the phone, yelled because he, what he sales had call? done. Yes. This is a sales call. I'm like, I want this guy to buy from me and I'm over here yelling at him. Um, cause what he had <laughs> done, <his> ass <laughs> oh, big time. He had built a sales team that was generating two deals per month. Yeah. There were five okay. people, one AE, the rest were all supporting roles. And yeah. I asked him like, well, why do you have this role here? This person's doing five minute qualification calls. Like, why not just give that to the sales rep? It's not like he's swamped with meetings. It's like, oh, oh, well, originally they started as this and it wasn't really working out. So I put them in this role. And that was the story for every one of the extra reps. I told this guy to fire four of his of the people on his sales team, him take over the sales for right now. And uh, and I don't normally do this on a sales call, right? This is normally what people would pay me yeah. to do. But I'm like, you are just too nice. You care so deeply about your people, which is something I appreciate about him. But you had his own psychology allowed himself to sort of like compartmentalize all these different parts of the sales process into isolated roles to where no one could be successful because there's yeah. so many handoffs, you don't even know what to focus on. So I share that because once you have this process laid out and it's built and there's some kind of foundation, it frees you to be able to focus on things that actually matter. This guy is so deep in the weeds on the handoffs that he's created because he just didn't want to let people go who have a useless job. I mean, one person's role was literally to do 35-minute qualification calls a month, wow. by the way. That's not wow. a day. That's a month. It's like, yeah, we yeah. don't need that person. I'm sure they're great. I love them too onto the next. So anyway, it's yeah. important, I think, that people understand that um, you need to have the structure, the operational rigor to unlock or earn the right to be able to operate at the people level. Because if you don't have that, then you can't effectively operate at the people level because you won't know, is it me or is it them? And that's the worst place to be for an organization. So do you recommend that 
So if we use this example of the founder-led, you know, sort of sales team, before they start really hiring, is it their job, do you think? And maybe the answer changes depending on the context. Is it their job to make sure that process is in place before they hire? Or what I see most of the time is that founder hires someone that's experienced, and it's usually not someone that has experience building out a process, and they're expecting a rep, an account executive to come in and build a process. So what should come first in that equation? The process, the team? Yeah. It's it going to be a little bit of both because um, typically what happens is the founder builds a process around their own workflow and workday that doesn't necessarily apply to a sales rep. So a great example of this is I worked with um, a company two and a half years ago who had just raised Series A and the founder had like 12 deal stages. And he had automation set up and built in a way to where as the person was using a product on a trial and stuff, it would move them into the appropriate stages so he could prioritize the people that were most likely to close. We hired two sales reps. Their sales immediately doubled overnight. Like you, we brought them on, they were closing deals month one. And it was because there was a lot of deal. There were a lot of deals in there that were being caught by his goofy sales process that he had developed. I call it goofy in the sense that like, it's not good for a sales team. For him, it worked because he has so many other things on his plate. So it's yeah. not always I build the process first and then I bring on a sales rep. But what I will say mm -hmm. is a lot of founders believe when I hire a sales rep, I can start getting myself out of the sales process. But that's actually when the work starts. You hire the first sales rep, you need to be the most focused you've ever been on the sales process until yeah. you get it to a place to where you can start to step away and it's working without your day-to-day -day hardcore attention. Yeah. So let's spend some time talking about a uh, sales process. Then this is what, this is step, step 15. This is one of the stuff that happens. We're going to kind of go a little out of order if that's okay that's with you. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> so um, with the sales process, and, and again, I think for someone listening, that's even in a company that's a little more mature, oftentimes there's a lot of ambiguity in the process and pipeline stages and all of this kind of stuff. Where do you start? when designing a sales process? So in, in step uh, 15, if I remember right, is the sales process designer, right? Where I yep. go through how to design out your sales process. Yeah, so there's a couple of things. A sales process needs to both reflect how we need to sell our product, but then also how our buyers buy the product. And we also need to acknowledge that not all buyers buy the same. Now, I want people to hear me. I'm not saying that the buyer is always correct like, for example, if you pull buyers, they're going to tell you, I never want to talk to a sales rep ever. I want to do all of the research myself and purchase on my own. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. We can pretend like it would because they said it, but it doesn't happen. That, that, that relationship, that impact that the sales rep has have is a really profound one. Um, but anyway, we have to look and say, some people are going to buy taking journey A. Some people are going to buy taking journey B. And that journey is going to look different for a lot of different companies, but our process will be have, will have categories that collect the milestones regardless on if they're journey A, B, and C. So for example, let's say there's three journeys, journey A, B, and C, and each journey has 10, 10 steps. They might all be different steps, but between journey A, B, and C, step three to four, five, six, steps three to six fall under one category. They might all be a little different, 
but they fall within one category and that's a stage of your sales process. So you allow yourself the ability to be flexible based on if they're on journey A, B, or C. And, and each of those steps might be different meetings, but you still categorize them under this specific stage in your sales process. So you can measure if we're losing people in that stage. Got it. So stages, how should we think about how these are set up? There's one side of the table I feel like is very sales centric where it's discovery, demo, proposal, yeah. close, et cetera. And then the other side is, oh, that's all wrong. You should be extremely buyer centric and it should be you know, problem identification, um, you know, multi-threading, business case, et cetera. Where do you, how do you advise, you know, your customers around the stages and, you know, make, removing the ambiguity really around what stage this should be in and what the exit criteria for each stage should be. And how yeah. do you, how do you advise around that typically? This entire debate is semantic. Yeah. It's the, literally the exact same thing. <clears throat> this is what cracks me up about like when I read stuff online of people saying, oh, you shouldn't use BAN. You should do that. It's they're all literally the same thing. Now, there are minor differences maybe that make them a bit unique, but at a structural level, they're all trying to do the exact same thing. So whatever you call your stages, I don't care. I call them discovery, demo, evaluation, negotiation, proposal, right? Like I'll call them whatever yeah. I want to call them for each of the different stages. It doesn't really matter to me what you call them. What matters more is how you define them. So generally you have a stage that is dedicated to qualification slash discovery. Sometimes you need like a full on qualification step because the, um, the sale is very complicated and that qualification is important before you kind of embark on this crazy journey of getting a deal done. Other times it's more simple and you're just going to start with the discovery. And in some cases, the discovery and the demo are going to be connected. But you look at your sales process, you say, what's the first step of our sales process? It's ensuring that this customer has a problem that we actually can solve. Now, if that doesn't sound customer centric, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> At the end of the day, you can call it discovery, you can call it buyer centric, blah, blah, blah. It's the same thing. We're trying to identify a problem that has a big enough impact that justifies solving. Once we've done that, we show them how our solution is the solution they need to get from where they are to the state that they're trying to get to. Let's call that demo. You can call it business case. I don't care what you call it. Maybe one sounds a little nicer than the other. At the end of the day, we are demonstrating that we have the capabilities that you need that are going to enable you to get from where you are to where you're trying to go. And then there's a whole logistic step where maybe they're evaluating other options or you need to put a proposal together. Maybe you need to do technical scoping. All that stuff is in its own step, but you can just see those are three steps that I just outlined as an example but it doesn't matter what journey the prospect's on because whatever the prospect needs us to do for their buying process will fit in one of those areas. And you just define what that this stage means. Here are the meetings that generally take place within these stages. And then here's what's required at a bare minimum in order to go from one stage to the next. Once you've done that, you can fit every sale into your sales process, which means you're getting very clean data on what parts of your process are working and what parts aren't. Yeah. And to double down on that part, that's that's why defining this is so important because it's kind of hard to figure out your team as a whole or even individual diagnosis, what the actual problem is if people are inconsistent around the stages and they aren't, there isn't clear exit criteria. 
That's right. you know, for each stage. Like when does something become a demo? Like how do we define a problem? What does that mean? Right. What are the list of problems that we solve? Um, and then the other thing I've heard too, I think that is relevant to this is, you know, stage-based versus meetings-based. You know, it's yeah. like it may take multiple meetings to demo. That's like right. you might do a demo for your champion and they bring in a group of people. You exactly. do another demo um, and making it stage-based, which most larger deals when you are not linear in terms of how they move in. So I love that piece. Um, anything else on sales process? So we have our stages, how we kind of manage that. If we think about sales process in the context of if I'm doing discovery and qualification, like the nuts and bolts of how to run those calls, does that fit into this step as well? Yeah, definitely. Like you need to give your reps the resources to be able to op, like do those calls really well. Uh, so, you know, a framework for running a demo, structure for their, or a framework for running discovery, structure for their demos, like all of that should be scripted slash built into a framework that your reps can use. But again, I find that the that lever is actually pretty low on the totem pole of impact because if you don't have all the other stuff, it doesn't really matter if you have five reps and all of them define the exit criteria from stage one to stage two differently. I can't tell you if we have a problem with stage one. And this is one yeah. of my issues with uh, like traditional sales training is it doesn't take into account where the individual is actually struggling versus the company as a whole is struggling. Because I can look at yeah. companies, a company's data set and say, oh, you guys have challenge getting from stage one to stage two. And then I can listen to an individual sales rep's call and say like, oh gosh, this sales rep is not very skilled and is struggling from getting somebody, you know, getting reps from stage one to, or sorry, prospects from stage one to stage two. But then there could be one or two other reps that crush it from stage one to stage two and they need support from stage two to stage three but now we're all sitting in a training and we're talking about how to get from stage one to stage two is it valuable sure but i think it's helpful to have the context of what all the reps are struggling with so you can build a program that is going to support the needs of every single rep i don't think there's a problem with sales training i just think uh companies really jump to that as this is what we need in order to dramatically improve results and talk to any sales trainer I, i've done a lot of sales training in my day uh, too and i know you do as well um there are times where you feel like you're delivering a really high quality training experience, but the reps are not seeing as dramatic results as some other reps are. And even you could be yeah. giving the, the same exact feedback, but you're flipping a coin, whether that's their actual problem or not. And I always say, yeah. if it's not broke, don't fix it. So if someone's doing something that isn't aligned with how I think it should be done, but they are operating at a very high level, why would I make any changes at all? Anyway, so that's how I feel yeah. about you know, the importance of sales process beyond just having a structure in place and the impact that it has on individual reps that are out on that team. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the analogy that came to mind when you mentioned that would be like having every single student in high school in this in math class, regardless of if people know calculus or geometry or not, you know, right. and then yeah, teaching right. everyone the same exact thing. Um, cool. So if we step back a bit, we got sales process is one of the key steps. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was... This is sort of, I mean, it's steps one through three. There's addressing our contactable, serviceable, addressable market. That's a mouthful. Deciding on our target vertical and defining buyer personas. And particularly step two and three, again, I deal with this working with companies that have several hundred reps that you would think have this figured out. 
when you think of vertical and persona, what are the do's and don'ts? Because I, again, I see, I see everything from every rep sells to dozens of different industries on the enterprise level. So they're not verticalized by industry. And then I see other companies that are highly verticalized by industry. And I see some that are like SMB mid-market enterprise. And then some of them are like, no, we only sell enterprise and everyone works big and small deals. How do you think about the targeting aspect of like how you construct your team and how they're organized and how focused, I guess, you are on like what your niche is and who you're going after in your personas? Well, at its core, it comes down to language. So can we speak the language of the buyer? And that buyer's language might be consistent amongst different verticals, and that's okay. So maybe you serve two or three different verticals, but the language and the buyer persona is similar across all those verticals. One sales rep might not have much trouble selling multiple different verticals. So for example, uh, I'll use myself. We work with B2B software companies and B2B service companies, and we help them build a repeatable sales process. The language of me speaking to a founder or a CEO around how to build a repeatable sales process stays relatively the same, regardless of the product. So I can work with a fintech company. I can work with a cybersecurity company. Not a big deal. But what about when we start moving into, let's say, a coaching company? So the language starts to shift a little bit. We're talking a lot less about kind of the deeper structures and we're really a lot more transactional and the delivery of the service is so different than the other two because it's not as productized, right? Now my language has to change. Can I change my language? I might be able to, but... I don't know if I can hire a sales rep that would be able to. And the same might be true between SaaS and a service company. So we have to acknowledge that within ourselves when we're trying to build out a sales process and say, what is the language overlap and is it real or am I just or do I just have such a deep level of understanding that I'm able to navigate it? So what I normally recommend to people is you pick one vertical and there might be a few buyer personas. Sometimes you can't get around that. Other times it's just one. And that is what you have the reps work do in the in the very beginning. Same thing that I would do if I hire an SDR. I just have them cold call at first. Get used to this workflow and then we'll add other channels. And I do the same thing on the persona side as well. So I think it is important that we get really specific before we broaden out. Um, and then you can start kind of giving more verticals to that rep if you need to. But more sophisticated companies benefit a lot from having verticalized teams um, and sometimes those verticals are literal industry verticals. Other times we're talking about enterprise, uh, mid-market, and then SMB. So language is your acid test. It's yeah. if I was speaking with a VP of, like, I'll give you an example. A client sells into uh, like contact center executives. So imagine like one Xfinity has a contact center, right? Right. Uh, you and I call in for our internet or our cell phone or whatever. Um, and then you have car manufacturer, let's say Tesla, they have a contact center. And let's say that part of their contact center is support for all of the different B2B type of interactions that they have, right? All of the parts that aren't made in their factory to support that type of thing. Mm-hmm. It's like, those are two contact centers, but very different goals in those contact centers. One's B2B, one's B2C. And as the acid test, if I'm hearing correct, if I have to use different language to speak to these two individuals, we should separate them. Like those should be different focuses. That would be a need for us to verticalize or segment 
in that way, especially for a, a rep that's just getting started. Especially, and that's what I was going to say. Like in this example here, you, you might categorize both those companies more of an enterprise sale, and you're going to have a sales rep that is more sophisticated in their skill set and their industry knowledge of contact centers across multiple different verticals that it could justify just having one sales rep who manages enterprise deals and they can manage any enterprise deals because they have so much industry experience. Guess what? Yeah. Those deals better be worth a lot to you because that sales rep is going to be worth a lot. Now, if you have more junior reps or you're selling a lower value product and can't afford to hire somebody with a 200K base to manage really complex enterprise sales, then it may make sense to verticalize and say we have a contact center solution that serves B2B and B2C use cases. And we're building teams around those use cases and we are called the verticals, whatever we want to call them. It's very company specific, which is which makes it very difficult for me to say this is the thing to do. But this is how people need to be thinking about it is because as yeah. you add more complexity to the kind of language you need to speak in order to satisfy all different very variances in the people you speak to, now all of a sudden you need another tier of, ta of talent and it keeps going up and up and up and makes it more yeah. difficult. But a lot of times we look at it through our own lens and a lot of times the people that you're trying to hire are the people who start their own companies. And that can, <laughs> that's a very difficult kind of persona to hire for a sales team. So you need to be really honest about the type of person who's going to be most successful in that, in that role. Gotcha. Are there any other mistakes that you see folks make with... Like prioritization, I feel like is such a big thing. Like one, yeah. one of the exercises almost always that I do, I just started, launched a new team uh, this week is a group of like 40 BDRs. And the exercise was reverse engineer your last 10 meetings booked and, and they sell enterprise. And it's like, yeah, I get that there's 12 different verticals, but you guys land 80% of your meetings in these two. We're going to spend the rest of the time we're working together just on those two verticals and this one persona where you get most of your meetings. Is that a best practice as well? Are you going in? I know data is your superpower. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I know that you look a lot of this at a lot of this stuff, but one other point on that actually is that another team I was working with, I asked them to pull a report like this and the and it was like they were astonished by the outcome of the report in terms of what it told them these types of personas at these specific types of companies are most responsive when they were focusing on something that was very much the opposite of that. Yeah. So is that part of this, like deciding on our target vertical and buyer personas, once we're several years or decades in the game as a company, is there a prioritization exercise that should happen at some point where it's just like, let's just double down on what's working? Absolutely. So we will run that report quite a bit. Like for example, we work with a customer that sold to VCs, banks, and like large educational institutions like colleges and stuff. And their number one priority was uh, VCs. And it makes sense. VCs are kind of a sexy you know, category yeah. and they had a lot of really impressive logos there. But what we found was that VCs represented the smallest, smallest average deal size and the equivalent sales cycle to banks yeah. compared to banks sales cycle wise. And wow. banks were like 5X the deal size. So we're like, yeah. and there was enough banks to show like you actually can support this, you know, this, um, this channel or this, uh, vertical. So then you go, all right, well, let's just try to talk to more banks. 5X return on the same amount of effort is a pretty, pretty much as much of a no brainer as you can get. <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, there are mistakes around prioritization. Another mistake I find a lot is not investing enough into the list. 
the list is really important. I have friends who say the list is the strategy. I don't go as far as uh, as that, but I do think it is a critical component that is very often overlooked and underinvested in. So many people want to buy new sales tools to make their team more efficient. And like their team has all this open time anyway, right? Like <laughs> let's let's make sure that the leads they're calling are as high of quality as you can. I have always found that provides the highest return on investment than buying like another software product that does something cool. Like there's so many stupid software products. Like uh, one that comes about is Crystal Nose. I know, sorry if you, you work with them or something, but um, no. that's such a dumb product. Oh, we're going to give you a disc profile on the prospect so you can like better craft your yeah. It's dumb. Like I it get doesn't it. Work. It's like, yeah, and it doesn't even work. And, and I get like, oh, kind of cool. It got me right, blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, you know, let's find out their horoscope and then we're going to send them crystals that they can charge in the moon. Like it's stupid. But um, <laughs> people are like, would be like readily purchase that, but then not spend yeah. an extra dollar per lead to make sure yeah. that you're getting like the proper phone number. What are we talking about here? So anyway, like uh, that always drives me insane because it's a better use of money, but not nearly as flashy. Yeah, yeah. Mer we need to know that Mercury's in retrograde for Kyle right, right now, right. and we need to be extra sensitive in the you, cold email. Could you imagine if that was a thing? If it was like, "Hey guys, just so you know, Saturn is going backwards right now, so we're yeah. expecting less output from our regions, <laughs> Florida, Georgia, and West or in East Texas." You would be like, yeah. you're an idiot. We're just going to call people yeah. and yeah, have talks, conversations about their problems. But like, we we get so excited about stupid stuff, like knowing somebody's personality type when we reach out to them. When we reach out to them, someone's personality type is very helpful, like to better resonate with them, build trust with them in order to sell them stuff. But someone's personality type doesn't dictate whether they think that this problem is worth solving for them or not. Yeah. So anyway, totally. I just am not as passionate about that. Let's talk about the list. So can you in more detail talk about what do you like what is a good list versus bad list? Is this like once we've defined our CSAM, our contactable, serviceable, addressable market, <laughs> is this like, hey, we've clearly identified here are all of the accounts. These are all of the companies. And then we've gone through and gotten email addresses, phone numbers. Is this something that you see particular types of software being good for? Should a certain part of this be manual? Like what is a good list? What does that look like? So a couple of things. One is you're right, making sure that we have as much coverage as possible in the market that we are targeting. And I call this the CSAM because everyone knows what their SAM is, but nobody thinks about what percentage of their SAM can they actually reach out to. So I added the word contactable in front of it. And part of it's tongue in cheek, like it is funny to me to call it that, but sometimes people need Super a stupid funny. acronym yeah. to do something correct. So um, yeah. anyway, but what, let's say you have a thousand companies that you can sell to. What percentage of that thousand can we actually get information on? Let's say it's 700 out of that thousand. What I typically will do is give that thousand to somebody to manually go through and try and find as many of the companies that fit within that thousand as possible. So they're scraping the websites. I usually pay someone on Upwork or something to do like a this. A virtual assistant. A virtual yeah. assistant. And then I'll get a list of the 700. Like, hey, here are 700 companies that we believe are part of what we would assume is the thousand companies that exist that we could target. 
great. Then you take that and then now you go and try to find contact information for the main decision makers that are at those companies. And let's say out of the 700, we're able to find a decision maker for 500 of them, which probably is high by the way. But let's say we find 500. Now we have 500 decision makers at companies that based on all of our upfront research, points to them being a good fit for our product or service. Now, when we reach out to that list, there's another layer of qualification. And this is an area that a lot of people miss out on. If it turns out they don't qualify, we remove the lead. We mark it disqualified, explain the reason why. Now it's out of everybody's list. But we're also collecting what I call secondary intel. There are certain things that you could only find out by actually talking to somebody at an organization. So what you do is when your SDRs or your AEs are reaching out to these companies and they're either talking to the decision maker or somebody else, they're also going to try to collect secondary and intel like, oh, what tool do you guys use for managing X? And it might not be something you can get out of a database provider like ZoomInfo. So now that enriches your database. Oh, you guys are using Y for that today? When's your guys' contract up? And now we have when their contract is up with our competitor and we know what competitor they're using. Like these are things that you normally cannot get from a data provider that you can enrich your database with. And then you blink, a year goes by and you realize, wow, I can run a report right now of all customers in my database that are using software A and whose contracts expire in, in two months. Well, that's pretty powerful to be able to run a cold outbound campaign to just that group of people. You wouldn't be able to do it unless you were collecting that information while you were doing the outreach. You know, this is where uh, I'm curious your take on this too, because I want to segue into tech, like tech stack and that kind of stuff. But the whole AI bullshit right now, I feel like is just so, this is the stuff that I would want AI to do. If I'm recording a cold call through my dialer, and the name of a software pops up, why wouldn't that just be automatically added yeah. into the CRM? It'd be very helpful. That like, it just like that technology exists and that's just not what it's being used for. Right, right. You know, um, but what, while we're on tech stack, what are your thoughts on, cause I see all, it sounds like you see the same, like super bloated tech stacks with all yes. of these weird tools and none of them work together. And we're definitely seeing a trend. I'm curious where this goes. I mean, you got Zoom Info, Gong, Chorus, or sorry, Zoom Info, Gong, Sales Loft, Outreach, and now Clary, all trying to own the tech stack, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the go-to-market tech stack. Yeah. Um, what, what are the things that you advise a company on? Like, what are the bare bones kind of basic things that you need? And, and where do you see people wasting money and advising like, Hey, you just, you don't even need this. Like, in fact, you need to cancel the contract now. Like this is just a fat waste of money. Um, what are your thoughts on? Usually it's in it, the waste of money happens in the overlaps. So for example, if you have HubSpot and outreach, that's silly to me. HubSpot does everything outreach does. Are there a couple of extra things that are useful? Yeah. Can we use logic to rationalize why they're, why they're useful? Yeah, but they're really not all that useful. This is what yeah. I tell people the only stuff you need is. You need a list, so a way to make sure that we have the right type of data. You need a way to, to conduct your outreach against that list. So that means you need a dialer and a way to send emails and track that we are doing that. I like being able to build out sequences 
So that's kind of a tool that I would consider mandatory. Usually that dialer and sequencing is all built in together. So that would be one yeah. category of tool sales and enablement platform. I think is what they call it. Sales engagement platform. Um, but a lot, like I said, HubSpot has all of this built in. And then there's somebody who has HubSpot with all of that feature, uh, that, that whole feature set. And then they also have outreach. It makes no sense. Um, and then call recordings. I might yeah. be missing something, but those are the three most important ones to me. I really don't care about other stuff. If you want to use them, great. Um, I don't like giving tools to the reps that impact their lead list. So any tool to allow a sales rep to do deeper research into a prospect, I think is is not a great use of their time because I'd rather just do that for them on the front end. So it's all right there in our CRM. So it's irrelevant if a rep is using the tool, not using the tool, the rep is new or been there forever. Yeah. So I like to like build that out within our CRM. So I don't find those very useful. Yeah, this is where I'm totally on the same page with you here. The only thing justification I could make for using sales engagement, if you have HubSpot is if you can use an Apollo where you can check the list building and the sales engagement off yeah, in like a that. tool, um, it's kind of nice. But um, this is where I feel like Having a good ops person or an ops team, if you're a larger company, to do some of this research is really nice. I, what do you think the resistance is to that? Because I see large companies where you have a rep that's being paid a 200k plus base that'll probably make four or five hundred grand selling enterprise, finding their own emails and phone numbers for prospects. It's crazy. It's you can literally pay three to eight dollars an hour to an overseas virtual assistant to do this stuff. And I get that you want to do that in a way that's secure and you're probably not going to have that person in your sales force and you know that that sort of thing. But totally it is the resistance to this what what are you seeing in the companies? Why don't they invest more in that ops type of stuff that will literally free up in one to two, three hours a day of yeah. a rep's time? I think a big part of it is they don't realize the impact that that has. Because think about like if I were to explain to you what an ops role does, it doesn't sound incredibly valuable if you don't really know the value, <laughs> right? And it's hard to articulate that value because like, oh, what? Is, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, you want me to spend a hundred grand a year for the, an ops person? Cool. Uh, so what are they going to do every day? And you're like, all right, well, they're going to organize your lead lists. Uh, they're going to route leads sometimes. They're definitely going to shuffle leads. Uh, they're going to make sure leads are enriched before giving, being given to the reps. They're going to uh, make sure leads are distributed properly. They're going to make sure that things are being tracked all right. And they're like, okay, so like I can hire a sales rep that's just going to close deals though, right? Couldn't I just do that? Like yeah. you could, but this enables, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, you have to just be on this journey with me and like trust that we're going to get to a good place. And people who are, um, you know, people who have exposure to this stuff, like they realize the value of having an ops role, but I've gotten pushback from people. Like I, I remember I, I was working with a client. I was there on site, which I never do. I just happened to be on site and I had spent four hours with their VP of sales about on like scripts and just dumb stuff. And I like, give me a minute. And I left this little meeting with the VP of sales. I went into the CEO's office and said, I'm going to be completely honest with you. Ops is your number one bottleneck, but you're not going to know the value of it because you need to track things for 30 and 60 days to be able to look at it and determine what's actually holding your sales team back. I'm in there. I've spent four hours with your VP of sales. We could guess, but the guy doesn't even know what the outcomes of the cold calls that are happening is. 
and you're yeah. going to have a big problem. Your sales will plateau or drop and you're going to be like, what's going on? What's going on? You're going to panic. And the answer is going to be, give us 30 to 60 days so we can track enough information to get the answer to the question. Alternatively, you could do it now and then you won't run into the trouble. Anyway, so this customer of ours gave us a, a testimonial after working with us. And then a year later, we did a revisit testimonial, which was the first time I ever did. It was kind of a cool idea. It was his idea, actually. And I asked him, what was like one thing that was very valuable for you, but you didn't really get it at the time? And he said, operations. He said, operations. I didn't fully mm -hmm. get how important the ops side of this was. There you go. Yeah. You know, it's really important. Well, I mean, you alluded to that second benefit around just having someone that can clean up your pipeline metrics. Cause yeah, you know, a lot of the companies that I work with, if they sell SMB mid-market enterprise, those are different conversions. Those might be three different pipelines that you have to pull conversions from. Right. And being able to do that is so powerful. And many, many large companies are not able to even pull that kind of data, which is crazy to yeah, me. They have no idea. Um, I want to talk to you lastly about team structure. So Again, I'm seeing some weird stuff this year. There's been an increase in the, I guess, a decrease in the ratio of SDRs to AEs. So in, yeah. in other words, what I'm seeing a trend of at larger companies is we're going to have account executives that do more of their own fishing. Yeah. They're going to be required to self-source. And then I have a client that has only account executives. They have like 300 account executives, no SDRs. Whoa. And then I see the other kind of extreme of that where it's like one-to-one -one support and it looks like too much support where the account executive is 100% reliant on SDRs and marketing to hit pipeline. Mm -hmm. And they run into a lot of troubles when marketing is down or not working. Kind of like right now for a lot of companies, they get into big time trouble because they're account executives. It's like they forgot how to send a cold email. Yeah, yeah. What do you advise for an early company that's maybe thinking about how to structure? Should they have SDRs? Should it just be account executives? How should they kind of think about that structure? So the real answer is it depends. It's very company specific. Mm -hmm. It also depends as, as a founder running the sales themselves, what they have the bandwidth for. What I typically tell them is if you have the bandwidth to do sales calls and you're doing fine closing deals, get an SDR to just to keep you full with sales calls. And then once it gets too crazy, bring an AE to you know offload that too. Uh, and then some general heuristics I use is the smaller the total addressable market, which typically means the longer the sales cycle because you're selling a higher value product. Uh, generally, you want more account executives to SDR, sometimes no account executives, or sometimes no SDRs because um, there's just not enough volume to support it. And then as you go to more mid-market, generally you have like you know medium length sales cycle and the products are you know, 30 to 100K, uh, maybe 30 to 60, 70K. <clears throat> then usually you'll see a one-to-one -one and it may make sense. And then when it's very transactional, then uh, it's a large total addressable market short sales cycle. Typically you'll see more SDRs to AEs. And then the question quickly yeah. becomes why? Because if you sit down and just think about it, you might think, oh, I can have a full cycle AE that just does the whole thing and then I don't have to pay this extra expense. I want to remind everybody why there's an SDR and AE function as opposed to just full cycle AEs. It drops cost of sale. We've forgotten that. If you do the math, you're gaining efficiencies by splitting that role and spending less on the prospecting side than you were when the AE was doing it. Therefore, you're decreasing the amount 
you are spending to acquire appointments. And you get the added benefit generally of an AE who can spend the vast majority of their time focused on closing and improving in that skill set, which increases win rates. And then it goes the other way too. You have an SDR that is focused more on generating pipeline, increases that skill sets and increases kind of meeting rate. That drives down cost of sales quite significantly if you were to sit and do the math. Uh, so I'm a big fan of splitting the role. It doesn't make sense for everybody, but I'm a big fan of splitting the role. And the answer to the question is always, you have to do the math. What has to be true for this team composition to make sense for your organization? What activities have to take place and what conversion rates must be true? And if we can't get those things to happen in real life, then we need to adjust the model accordingly and build the team according to our re reality. Yeah. I think this year, 100%, dude, I think this year has been a big realization for a lot of enterprise sales teams. It's the SDR function doesn't work at a lot of these companies. That's that's really what it is. You know, I, I've seen an increase in large organizations coming to me just for help with their SDR team. They're like, yeah. we haven't gotten this thing to work. And that's shocking to me because it's the easiest yeah. team to build. The easiest. Yeah. I could do it in my sleep. It's so easy. But uh, they yeah. just struggle with it. I don't know why. <laughs> Boy, I mean, I think there's a lot of... If you don't have good systems and process like we've been talking about today, right. taking someone who's first or second sales job and equipping them with the ability to speak yeah. to an executive that's 10, 20 years their senior. That's right. If you need good process, totally you know, for right. that. Totally right. But I think just want to double down on what you said around doing the math, like do the math. If the math is not working, you need to change something. And I think a lot of in tech at least, because it's such a bubble, there was this growth at all costs mindset around the funding sort it's just like let's just fix this with headcount we're adding headcount we're adding headcount and no one really stopped to think until the money dried up a bit that hey all of this headcount we added like we didn't actually increase efficiency efficiency decreased yeah and then now we're getting additional revenue not through efficiency increases just through additional headcount you know and it just we've become more unproductive but um Dude, this is a good combo. I definitely recommend you guys check out Kyle's book. Uh, let them know again, what's the book called? Where can they get it? Where can they connect with you if they want to learn more? All that good stuff. Yeah, it's called 16 Steps to Repeatable Sales. It's on Amazon. You can follow me on LinkedIn as well, Kyle Van Forrest. And uh, our website is forrest.com. And we have a lot of really great resources there for folks. So definitely check that out.